passage. Malachi chapter 3. If you don't know where Malachi is, just find the book of Matthew and go left. It is the last book of the Old Testament. For those of you that are Jewish, the Tanakh. So the last book of the Old Testament, just before the book of Matthew. Uh, this, was, this book was written, and then there was 400 years of silence. Well, God still was speaking, but I mean 400 years where the scriptures weren't being uh, written, but the Lord was still moving in lives and still speaking, and some great things even happened uh, in the nation of Israel during those period. But uh, this was the last uh, and last book written, one of the minor prophets. And I'm going to pick it up, Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, and then I'll be reading verse 13 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. It should be marked with Malachi chapter 3. Um, wow. Oh, just one. Thought we might have had a, a zero, but every now and then, and if you need a Bible, don't have a Bible, you can keep the one that's given to you. We're glad to give you that as a gift. But starting with verse 13, Malachi chapter 3, God speaking, your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Wow, what a, what a statement by God. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is there if we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed, those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels and I will spare them. As a man spares his own son who serves him, then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you for this word. These are your words, Lord. Father, you said they've spoken harshly about you. And Lord, we pray that you would give us insight, that you would give us conviction, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us, Lord, a soft heart. And Lord, we receive what it is you want from the Spirit. I just pray your anointing on this time. May your word be magnified. May I be removed from the equation, so to speak that they would hear from you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So the setting of Malachi chapter 3, well, actually all of Malachi, but the setting of the book of Malachi, if you're wondering, well, what time period was this? What was going on? The setting of Malachi takes place about 100 years after the 50,000 Jewish captives or exiles had returned to Judah from Babylon. Remember, Israel was carried away into Babylon into captivity. Then they were there under the Persian Empire. But 50,000, only 50,000, the vast majority of uh, the captives and the exiles didn't want to go back. They actually fell in love with Babylon. But 50,000 went back, and they returned. And the temple by this time had been rebuilt by Zerubbabel. You might have heard his name before. Zerubbabel had rebuilt the temple. The sacrifices had returned. All the sacrifices were now back. The priesthood was uh, performing the daily sacrifices. Nehemiah, he had rebuilt the walls of the city. So Jerusalem walls had been rebuilt. 
And this was less than a century, though, from recovering and being set free, recovering from the most painful judgment in the history of the nation, where God had literally wiped out the nation state, carried everybody to captive, temple destroyed. So less than 100 years later, they're back. Their population is growing again. But the majority that were there 100 years after the exiles had, had come back, they were now once again going to the temple, but it was just religious routine. It was just going through the motions. It was so routine, so blasé, so returning just kind of this religious routine of, yeah, we got to go to church. Here's some more information. Do what God says to do. All of that stuff that they had begun readopting the lifestyle of the world. They had begun to look again at the world and say, they have, what it, they have where it's at. But not everyone. There was a remnant. Here in ancient Israel, God always has an, a remnant, doesn't he? There was one group that wasn't thinking that way. But we have two separate groups of people here in verses 13 through 15 and verses 16 through 18. Two separate groups of people. They're uh, ethnically and culturally the same. Ethnically and culturally the same. Both Jewish. They're both living in the same geographic place. They're both neighbors of each other. They're both distant relatives of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They're both raised under the law of Moses. Both went to the temple. Both were given the same scriptures that Joshua had and Samuel had and David had. And they're both pondering the character and faithfulness of God. In this room, everyone here ponders at times the character and faithfulness of God in ways you may not even know you're pondering the character and faithfulness of God. And it's cited for us that both groups actually spoke out loud. They were actually speaking out loud, and guess what? God was listening to what they were saying. Um, God's always listening to what we're saying. He's even listening to the private thoughts of what we're saying. He's listening to how we talk about him, how we talk to him, how we talk to other people. But he's listening to their conversations and the conclusions of their conversation because their conversations also had a conclusion. They both came away with an assessment of who God was and how that related to them. You see, both were looking at the same landscape of life and the times they were living in. But their vision was very, very different, wasn't it? One group decided to fear the Lord. One group was speaking against God, complaining about God. Their vision was vastly different. In particular, their view of God, their spiritual sight, and their faith in God were all different. It's been said, you've heard this, I'm not, not coined this, but every now and then I'm reminded of it myself. It's been said that the same sun that hardens the clay softens the wax. Same sun, right? Is our vision of God, his goodness, his faithfulness, his holiness, his worthiness, is it becoming more and more clear? Is it becoming more and more into focus as we grow in his grace? Or is it becoming distorted? Our vision of God becoming completely distorted, marred, clouded. Are we becoming more faithful or more fearful, <coughs> consecrated to Christ, or more covetous. 
joyful or jaded? Now, all of these things, I mean, we all walk the same dusty roads of earth. We all walk the same thing. But our response, how are we seeing God? As I've titled this morning, Don't Lose Sight. Don't Lose Sight. God wants us to have a clear vision of who he is and a firm faith in who he is. Do you believe that? He doesn't want us to waver in doubt. We'll look at two, just two things this morning. First is uh, what I've titled, Conflicted and Compromised. Conflicted. There's, a, there's just a battle in what we're thinking. And you can actually, when, you're, when you have two conflicting thoughts, you, you can, you're going to probably land one way or another. Because you might kind of say, well, I think God's good here, but not so good over here. And I think he helps me here, but he doesn't help me here. And I think he means this. Or, and I'm saying that people will actually have these conflicting views of God, and they get conflicted in their heart and mind. And when they go the wrong direction and they choose their feelings over faith, then they become compromised. They start to compromise. Compromise the faith. Compromise what the scriptures say to do. If we've heard the truth of God, we have a choice to believe it or not believe it. But the longer our hearts are conflicted with what God has said versus what we feel or desire, will eventually compromise if we stay in that place of just battling instead of just saying, yes, Lord, thus saith your word. The enemy wants to cloud our view of God. Do you believe that? The enemy wants to cloud everyone. Pastor's view of God. He wants to cloud your view of God. He wants to cloud unsaved people's view of God. He wants to cloud leader's view of God. He wants to cloud children's view of God. And there's two primary ways that the enemy clouds our view of God or obscures our view of God. Uh, the first is with distractions. So we really don't see God at all and just kind of forget him. The proverbial out of sight, out of mind. Now, this works really well because Satan has so many things to distract you that you can kind of forget there is a God. And the world, many people have forgotten there's a God because they don't really think about God. They're thinking about everything. They're thinking about their job. They're thinking about their house. They're thinking about their kids. They're thinking about their fantasy football league. They're thinking about this. They're thinking about that. What radio station I want to listen to. There's so many things to think about, and we're in the age of information overload that all of a sudden God just all of a sudden vanishes from the mind. So he can cloud our view by just distraction. And the second, the enemy can cloud the character and trustworthiness of God so that what we see of him isn't at all who he actually is. And we start to believe a misrepresentation of God that's formed from our own flesh or formed from our foe, the enemy Satan himself, who likes to say, hath God really said? Is he really faithful? If he really loved you, would he have allowed this in your life? Is he really be trusted? The enemy loves and lives to redefine God. But God can't be redefined, amen? amen? The enemy loves to redefine him, but you can't redefine him. You need to refine him. Not redefine him, refine, F-I-N-D him. The misrepresentation of God typically results in either a benevolent, anything goes kind of God. You ever heard this kind of God described by people? Some benevolent, he doesn't care what in the world you do as long as it's done in love. He accepts any lifestyle, any morals of your choosing. 
that's the kind of God some people think exists. That God does not exist. Or there's this view of God. He's an uncaring God. He's an angry God. He fosters misery, fosters sadness. He fosters anxiety. He fosters uh, all kinds of chaos. And he's silent and couldn't care less about your pain. That God doesn't exist either. Both views are completely wrong. But let's under, uh, but in, well, let's say one other thing. There's actually a third category of a view of God. It's a paradoxical combination of both. You'll, have, you'll find people that actually, on the one hand, you'll hear them talking one day as if God doesn't care about uh, he, anything goes. The next day you hear them talking about that God is a mean person. Like, which is it? Well, because then God is not the author of confusion. People are confused at the nature of God. They can actually waffle between both views of God, depending on the temperature of their life, what's going on. But let's understand how this first group saw God in verses 13 through five, uh, 13 to uh, 15, how this first group saw God and how it impacted their lives and ultimately their future if they didn't turn from this view. Listen to the Lord's opening observation. He says, your words have been harsh against me. God's listening to the speech. He says, your words. I've been listening to what you've been saying about me. I've heard everything you've said. I've heard you use my name in vain. I've heard you say this. I've heard you say that I can't be trusted. I've heard you said it's useless to follow all these things. God says, I've heard your words. God hears our words, as I mentioned. Whether we verbalize them or not, he hears our thoughts, doesn't he? He hears the internal conversations we have with ourselves. We all talk to ourselves, by the way. Don't think you're weird if you talk to yourself. You're normal. We all talk to ourselves. You need to preach to yourself. You need to speak scripture to yourself because yourself will lie to yourself. But God will not lie to yourself. So I have to talk scripture to myself. I have to talk myself off the ledge and onto the ledge, depending on what it is, right? But God hears our thoughts. And here's the conclusion of our thoughts. What we finally decide to do is the conclusion of our thoughts. What we say when we finally get up and go do X or Y, it's the conclusion of our thoughts. And the reality is our actions ultimately convey what we're saying. Our actions ultimately convey what we really believe, what we really will uh, think about God, what we've determined. What we do validates what we say, that how we proceed in life is exactly what we've been saying to ourselves or about the Lord. But God says their words were harsh. The Hebrew word for harsh is kazak, kazak. It has several meanings, but among them is this. This word kazak, it means strong, resolute, grievous, and severe. They were strong and severe in their criticism of God unscathing, not holding back in their criticism of God. They were giving God a piece of their mind. Not a wise thing to do, by the way. Giving God a piece of their mind. Giving each other a piece of their mind about the Lord. Severe accusations against him. By the way, if you're going to be accusing God, you might want to be right, right? Well, that'll never happen, so you can't ever accuse God. Nevertheless, let's look at their initial response to God's pointing out their words. God says in verse 13, Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Look at their response. Yet you say, what have we ever spoken against you? What a response. Who do you think's right in this situation? 
Any of, any of you have kids? Does this sound like a familiar discussion? What in the world were you thinking? What are you talking about? Can I roll tape? with You were in the same room as me. We did... It. We try and hide from God like, you know, we, we didn't, I don't know, what are, you, what are you talking about? What have we ever said? They're not even sure what God is spotlighting. Now, obviously, this is a common tactic in deflecting responsibility to feign ignorance. People do it at work. People do it on the job site. Kids do it, but adults do it too, right? Feign ignorance. Now, there may have been some parts that they didn't know they were doing. We are ignorant of some of our sin, aren't we? We're ignorant of some of the times we've, we've messed up. But most times we're not so ignorant we just try and pretend like we are. Because it, be, it makes us feel a little better in our conscience. I don't know what you're talking about. Also, over time, though, we can become completely unaware of things. We become so dull to the Spirit of God, so dull to the voice of God, we don't even know we're going against the Lord in our attitudes, in our actions. We become bitter. We become ungrateful. We become unbelieving. We have this idolatrous attitude, and we're not even aware of it. You can become completely disattached from the reality God sees about you or me. We can. We can become disattached to it. And God says, look, you don't even know. Jesus, this, by the way, this passage in Malachi is very similar. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. The last book in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. This is very similar to Jesus' letter to the churches where he identifies things that they are either completely unaware of or if they are unaware of, they have stuck their head in the sand, right? Where he says, you are poor, wretched, naked, and blind. They're like, really? We seem to think we're doing really good. So we can become unaware. Leonard Ravenhill said there are three persons living in each of us. The one we think we are, the one other people think we are, and the one God knows we are. If our view of God is wrong, we can be certain our view of ourselves will be wrong. Does that make sense? If our view of God is wrong, we can absolutely be certain our view of us is wrong. The Word is a mirror. I read the Bible not because I'm a pastor. But, well, I do read the Bible because I'm a pastor because I'm going to stand account someday. God's going to say, did you preach my Word? Did you, did you preach fun, you know, kind of highly motivational things? Were you a Christian Tony Robbins? Were you this? Were you that? Or were you preaching the Word of God? Well, Yes, I study the Word of God because God's called me to be a pastor. But if I wasn't a pastor, and when I wasn't a pastor, I always read the Word of God because I need the mirror of God's Word to know where I'm at. How many of you use a mirror in your life? I hope you do. If you don't, I encourage you to use a mirror. <laughs> really be really good for you. Men, when we shave, you know when you, you, when you ever shave in the shower and then you get somewhere and you realize you missed a spot, it irks you for the entire time until you... You'll have to stop at a CVS just to get a razor just to fix this issue, right? But if you use a mirror, then we don't have oversights. God shows us all the little things. The mirror is good. So the Word of God is a mirror in our life, and we need that. And if we don't, if we say, well, I don't really read the Bible anymore. I just have a little quick little, little devo. It takes me about 30 seconds. That's not a mirror. It's not a mirror. You've got to Get in and let the Holy Spirit start to show what is in 
our hearts, where we're at. But we can become so acclimated to the culture, again, as we just kind of fade and just do religious rituals, we can become so acclimated to the culture that we actually reflect the culture. We don't reflect the Son of God. We reflect the culture. And we even have the world's views of God after a while. We start to talk like them. If they think serving God's a waste of time, we think it's a waste of time. And by the way, that's happening in the American church today. The reason why church attendance goes down, 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 down. They say, well, I, I still attend church, but most Americans attend way less than they used to because they think it's just not that important. I don't know where they got that idea because the scriptures say, forsake not the assembly of yourselves together, which is the manner of some, but even more as you see the day approach. You know Jesus is closer to returning next week than he is at any time in world history. So we would actually be gathering more, not less. So if you say, well, I don't need to gather as much, then that would mean you don't believe the verse. You'd say, well, that verse is not really that, that's not a faithful verse. I believe it's true, do you? We need one another. We need to gather. But uh, the word of God, we can either be changed by it or we'll be changed by the culture around us. And it should be noted that many of the priests, by the way, this time the priesthood, we have a pastorate in America. We have many other pastors. I got together with 20-some this week uh, up in uh, Smith Mountain Lake. We spent a couple of days just praying and encouraging and getting the word and challenging one another and planning and praying for revival and all these things. But, but there's a lot of pastors in America, and they had a lot of priests in that time. The Levites were the, were the spiritual leaders. Did you know that many of them at that time were then pandering to the desires of the people? Now, Paul said this would happen, that people would up, heap up for themselves teachers that would actually say, what do you want me to be? What do, you, what do you want me to tell you? Let me tell you everything. God loves everything you're doing. Um, and they would do that. And the priesthood was basically pandering and coddling these false re representations of God. And the people were quite happy with it because there was no one to preach the truth. And they were pandering to this. What had this group of people come to believe? Look what it says. God says, this is what you've said. You have said, verse 14, it is useless to serve God. Useless. Well, also, note, take note of the word serve. You might want to underline that word serve because I think one of the common misconceptions in, in the church is that you are not saved just from judgment. You are saved to now serve God. We're not saved just from judgment. We are saved from judgment. Praise the Lord for that. Yes. Judgment is horrific. No one wants to be cast into outer darkness. But if you're saved from judgment, you're saved to something. To, sir, to now be a godly mom, a godly dad, a godly brother or sister in the Lord. So we're saved to something, not just from something. And he says, you say it's useless to serve God. They actually understood the concept that they were supposed to actually serve. The primary meaning of serve, if you're wondering, it means to labor, work, or do work to labor, work, or do work. Christian, if Christ came and conducted an impromptu work review with each and every one of us, a one-on-one -on -one mid-year review, not past the mid-year, but you know what I mean, Jesus comes and sits you down and says, let's talk about your service unto me. You ever had your boss says, let's talk about your current performance? It's always fun, isn't it? Don't you love the constructive criticism? And they have to tell you something you could be doing better. And oh, it hurts. Because we, we, we want to be perfect. 
But Jesus says, you're not, you're not perfect. I found a few areas. You know Jesus would find that with all of us, right? Me, you, everyone. But one thing he would say is either you are or you aren't being faithful. He's gonna find, there's going to be flaws, but, but you're being faithful or you're not being faithful. And he, if he conducted, what would he find? What, how much of our life is really living for the kingdom of God or living for ourselves? By the way, that's exactly what he did in Revelation. Same thing, just went through those things with the seven churches. But they said, not only did they say it's useless, they said uh, there's no prophet that we keep his ordinances. There's no prophet to keep his word. There's no benefit to us. We're not seeing the, we're not seeing the ROI in serving God. We're not seeing the benefits to us in working under the Lord. They had become cynical. They had become flippant. They had become complaining. Many in the church, I believe today, are playing spiritual Jenga. You ever played that game, Jenga? They, they first get saved, and they believe that they, they must keep all those pieces, the word, prayer, fellowship, discipleship, growing, sitting under teaching, worshiping. Uh, I need to hear more of the word. And then after, the, the longer they get saved, they say, I can, I'm going to pull out the prayer one because that is a waste of my time. Just total waste of my Pull out the prayer one. After a little while, like, you know what? That fellowship one. I really like the dudes at work better. Pull that one out. After a little while, you know, I used to read the Bible every day, but once a week, another one out, right? And God's looking down and saying, your Jenga is about to fall. Well, it hasn't fallen yet. So it must not, it's not going to fall. If it hasn't fallen yet, it certainly won't fall. Isn't America playing spiritual Jenga? Just take this out. Just take this out. How far can we go? Can we let it teeter on one little wooden block? And God says, what if I go, right? Down it goes. Many Christians are playing spiritual. They were playing spiritual Jenga. I've never heard of that. I just made that term up. I don't know. Um, <laughs> hopefully it helps you understand. There, it's not a game that if you're looking to go to Lifeway and you, is there, do you have spiritual Jenga here? You know, that, my pastor was talking about spiritual Jenga. You know, there's a game we can play. No, you could, you could make it. You start writing these things on the blocks, make it yourself. I'll be on um, Shark Tank. Uh, I came up with this. What do you sharks think about this idea? You know. But they had become jaded and skeptical that serving God was not a blessing at all, but it's just a total pain in their backside. Notice that they came to believe that the way of the world was frankly a better option. So we now call verse 15, the proud, blessed, and those who do wickedness and raise up, they tempt God and go free. They got it way better than us. If we can't beat them, we should probably join them. They're doing great. That's what they had come to, uh, that was their conclusion. We might say, well, I'm glad I don't think like that. Glad that's not me, or do we think that way? A synonym of useless is the word impractical. Impractical. Another was useless. Uh, another is wor worthless. Uh, you see, many Christians would never say 
at least out loud, it's useless to serve the Lord. We may say serving the Lord is really impractical, and it's not, I can't sight fit it in, Lord, which is another way of saying useless, another way of saying worthless. And when we let other things take the first priority, Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and everything else will be added, but everything else gets in there, and God ends up number seven on the list, then we've said the same thing. It's useless, or it's worthless, or it's pointless. Um, when God no longer has the highest priority in our life, the competing interests have taken over. They are now in the driver's seat. The Lord is not in the driver's seat. The competing interests of our life are in the driver's seat. Um, Question for all of us. What's it going to take for all of us to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? What's it going to take? Here's what I hope it takes. Jesus saying, come. Isn't that a lot better than the Jenga blocks falling down? Just come. Jesus says, come, all your weary and heavy laden. If you really believe that he's the source of peace, then you wouldn't try and replace the Jenga pieces with plastic filler things. I wouldn't try. He's saying, come. A bondservant, that's what we're called to be, is one that serves under the authority of another. A bondservant doesn't choose its labor. A bondservant receives the labor from the master. We have a master. But the people who see no value in keeping the commandments, instead, they're looking longingly at the world and longing the lifestyles and the morals and the priorities of the world. They're looking over there and saying, that looks so fun on the other side of the fence. And you know, some Christians no longer are looking at the other side of the fence. They're climbing the fence. They're not just looking across the fence saying, wow, they have it so good. The grass is so green over there, over here. It looks like our property at uh, CCR. You know, our grass is pretty lame out there. I get it, you know. I could look at other churches and say, wow, they got this beautiful property. They got all this, got all that, got all this. I don't care about it. Do we have the Holy Spirit? That's all I care about. That's... That means so much more to God. We're not putting the other stuff down. Someday we have great car grass, that's fine. But we're not looking across. We're not climbing across. Let's understand that any number of things, any number of things can cloud our view, can distract and distort our view of God. Even those with a mature walk with the Lord, I want to encourage you with this. Even those with a mature walk with the Lord can have moments of real doubt about the character of God. If you're still feeling really guilty and say, man, I've had my doubts, you're not alone, so have I. Let me read you a couple. You ever heard of ASAP? Book of Psalms? ASAP wondered aloud. Listen to what ASAP said in Psalm 73, verses 2 through 5. ASAP speaking. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. He almost lost his way. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pangs in their death, their strength is firm, they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. You ever looked on and say, what? man, I serve the Lord like crazy. My car broke down. It's this weekend, we had a $600 car repair. Lovely. How about you get those days, you're like, why? Lord, what are we trying to do here? I get it. You get it. ASAP got it, and he said, what? He starts to wonder. What is, Lord, they don't have that issue. But God had a different perspective. How about Habakkuk? Habakkuk cried out with a question. Listen to Habakkuk. Habakkuk said this in Habakkuk 1, verse 2 through 4. 
you might relate to this. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contentions arise. The law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. You ever wonder why the world's a mess? And you're crying out, Lord, Lord, why would you let there be this Amber Alert? Why would you let this happen? Why? Habakkuk was asking those questions. Why, why, why? Then there's Jeremiah. I've got this one up on the Book of Lamentations. Jeremiah felt so depressed and so distraught with the trial of his life that he was in that he thought his prayers were going absolutely nowhere. Listen to what he says in Lamentations 3, 5, 3. He, speaking about God, he has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. Job questioned why he was ever born. David was gripped with fear and at times great weakness. Paul said he was pressed on every side and hard-pressed. Christian, it's not that you and I don't notice the fires of life. It's after we say those things, are they brief, fleeting moments that God collects our thoughts and fixes our thinking, or do we go further down the path and I don't believe any of this stuff anymore? Temptations, doubts, trials, boredom, sickness, success, tragedies, they all can derail us, can't they? It's not just the bad times. Matter of fact, I think the good times are derailing the American church way more than the bad times. I hear other pastors that praying for revival say, we need a stirring of persecution to awaken. I'm not praying that by myself. I'm just praying that God, would, we would just hear the voice of Jesus say, come. But these men and many others think about, you say, well, if Jeremiah said that, is he the same as what there's, no, no, no. God's listening to the heart of people that are yearning for God. And sometimes you have those like battle moments in the dark, if you will. These men and many others, I want to encourage you with this. These men and many others, they came through the fires, through the fog of their trials and their questions and their confusion to rest their hope on the faithfulness of God and cling to his grace and his righteousness. Amen? That's what these men ended up doing. They did not say, that's it. Because my prayer was not answered for the 50th time I've prayed it in 50 weeks. I'm done with God. They did not do that. They kept crying out. They would re-keep crying out. And they finally came to that place that they just said, Lord, I'm going to simply trust you whether I can see it or not. Now we know that this one group has had about enough of God. Whether it's because they're bored with God, the world looks like more fun, the sheep on the other side are having more fun, uh, or the, the goats on the other side are having more fun. Uh, whether it was the, the, the trials and tribulations, regardless, one group had given up on God and was complaining about him and speaking harshly about him. But that wasn't the only group. Let's take a look at this group. It was convicted and convinced. Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord 
spoke to one another. And the Lord listened and heard them. The second group, understand that some may have come over from the first group too, to the second group. Isn't that great? Did you know God wants everyone to come over from the first group to the second group? Because you might hear, be here this morning and say, well, I'm like ASAP. My and I said, whoo, that was close. I'm going with the other group. I know which group I want to be with. How about you? The second group, again, some of the first group may have come over and said, wow, we've come to our senses. They might have looked back at the promises of God and changed their attitudes, changed their priorities, changed their response, and come to the place of believing God, come to their senses, and sided with the word of God. You all know this verse from, Jer uh, from Joshua 24, 15. Choose whom, choose you this day whom you will serve. Joshua said, the choice is yours. Choose who you're going to serve. Joshua said, I know where I'm serving. But you have a choice. You can choose one way or the other. Their hearts were pricked. This group, their hearts were pricked. By the way, even if you love God, your heart will get pricked. Amen? Matter of fact, the more you love God, the more your heart will get pricked. Their hearts were pricked. They were convicted and convinced that God was true no matter what they felt or no matter how good it looked like everybody else was having it. No matter what they were going through, no matter how good their neighbors had it, no matter how good it looked like their coworkers were having it, and by the way, sometimes looks are deceiving, their life can be on the rocks where they look like they have it all good on the outside. So even that can be a mirage. But they chose to fear the Lord. That word fear doesn't mean like scared. That word fear means reverent, to revere God, to place him in the highest, 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 highest place of worship and reverence. They came to the conclusion that like, God, like Joshua, God knows it all. God owns it all. God controls it all. And he's faithful to all that trust him even when it's difficult, even when life is weary, even when our flesh is craving the other side of the fence. And we all have pet times. For me, it happens when the Costco thing comes in the mail. You know, I'm craving the other side of the fence. Well, I've told you that before. That mailing really gets on my nerves because there's really good stuff in there. And I'm like, I like you don't need that. You don't, you don't need that. That just make you fat. You don't need that. That just, you know, you can't even use all the stuff you already have. What? But they looked at the Word. They looked into the Word. They looked back at the Scriptures. They looked up and they refocused their faith. They may not have been able to see and understand everything God was doing, and I certainly don't see and understand everything God is doing, and you certainly don't see and understand everything God is doing. If you did, you'd be God. But they set their eyes on the truth. You guys know, I, a couple of years ago I started running. I still love to run, and my hamstrings healed, so I'm back to running again, and and I love when I go to run many, many, many times. The Lord reminds me of Jer uh, Job 35.5, look up the clouds, they're higher than you. And I love looking up the clouds because they're always higher than me. And I know that someday Jesus is going to come in the clouds. I know that he's seated in the clouds. I know that he spoke from a cloud. I know he baptized Israel in a cloud. And I look up the cloud. And this one day I was running out on the track. And, um, and I was running, and the, and the verse from Hebrews reminded me, you're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And it was a day there was no clouds in the sky. I was like, oh, bummer. I can't look at any clouds. And in the distance, while I was running, I saw this one little puffy cloud way in the distance. And I kid you not, by the time I finished running, clouds had surrounded the track. And the Lord was just speaking to me, saying, I've surrounded you with a cloud of witnesses. David did it. Job did it. Saul, Samuel did it. 
all of these saints have done it, and you can do it too. Put your faith, just keep your faith strong in me. We're running with a cloud of witnesses. There's a group that has said God is faithful. It strengthens my faith to know that not only is there only one God, but there has been people that have proven his faithfulness over time. There's a group like this that feared the Lord, that God spoke to them, and he wants to speak to us, that we can know him personally. How do you, aren't you glad God loves you eternally like Sam read? Like, he's loved us with an everlasting love. His grace is sufficient for every second of our life. Every second of your life, grace is sufficient. Say, well, can I get through that moment? Yes. You can't, but his grace can. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it anchors us and weathers us through any storm, anything. Let's notice the response of the second group. Their collective fear of the Lord, their trust in the Lord, their genuine belief brought them together. And those who fear the Lord spoke to one another. They came together, not in some sit, stand, sit, stand, sit, stand, leave service. No, they came together. They spoke to one another. They likely spoke of the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, his holiness. They probably took time to praise the Lord, maybe reminded one another of the provisions God had and the promises he had made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. They no doubt encouraged one another. Because the prevailing attitudes at that time were against God, that God is, hey, God's not faithful. God's not even worth our time. But they spoke to one another, and they were present and together. That's why come to the prayer meeting on Wednesday night. Be present together. The Lord will listen to our prayers. God wants to hear us talking about him, to him, and to one another about him. When I get together and I disciple men, we were having lunch not recently. I said, you know, God has been listening to our entire conversation. And he's well pleased because the whole time we were talking about Jesus. And Jesus, that I'll honor. It meant so much to God that it got written down. Look what it says. And so a book of remembrance was written before him. We don't know if this was written in heaven or if it was written on earth, but a book was written because God says, when my people talk about me in words of faithfulness and honor my name, it's written down for all eternity. Isn't that great to know? This message might not mean much to 99.99999% of the world, but it means a lot to Jesus. Isn't that great to know? Because if it speaks of his greatness and his goodness, God's writing it down. God ensures it's memorialized. Brother and sister, how often does God listen to what you're talking about? And what is it that we're talking about? And how are we explaining God to other people. And how are we talking about him? Are we, are we iron sharpening iron together, speaking of the goodness of God? Are we in fellowship? Are we being built up? Are we being encouraged? And are we encouraging others in the faith? Listen to Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. It perfectly illustrates, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling ourselves, which I mentioned earlier, the manner of some, but exhorting. But even before that last verse, look what it says. Let us hold fast to the confession of our faith. Let us consider one another. Stir each other up. I can't stir you up and you can't stir me up if we don't know each other and are in fellowship with one another. It's very important. And then 
we will see our faith and our trust in God continue to grow. And that's for everyone. There's not, there's not another option for the remnant of God. This is how God calls us to live, every one of us. There's no option B. This is our protection, brother and sister. This is our protection. Do you want to be protected? Say, yeah, I want to be protected. Then draw near to the Lord individually and collectively. This is our joy. The other stuff won't ever provide joy. Joy is so, well, uh, I think it was Ravenhill said, entertainment is a substitute for joy. And so we, we try and fill these things, but, but none of those things actually really minister to our inner man, to our spirit. Notice the rest. It says, those who fear the Lord and meditate on his name. We've got to be thinking of Scripture. We've got to be thinking about the Lord. We've got to be our mind set on him because when it's set on him, it can take us to whole new levels in spiritual vision, but also victory in our life. Notice what it says. It says in verse 17, they shall be mine. I'll make them jewels. Isn't that great to know? As Zechariah chapter 9 verse 6 says, we'll someday be jewels in the crown of God. We get mercy now and we get an eternity because he says here, I will, on them that I will spare. God spares me every day. But the more important thing is he's sparing us in eternity. Amen. He wants our clear sight and our mind to be established by the Spirit. He says in verse 18, Then you shall discern again between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. We'll have clear discernment in a crazy world. We'll have clear discernment. We'll know which way to go. We'll know how to answer in situations. We'll know what to think when the enemy's lying bold-faced in our ear, right? We'll be able to say, sorry, I know the truth. I'm not listening to that. You know what the word fear is, Right? False evidence appearing real. That's what Satan does constantly. It's always false from him, right? And we reject it and say, no, no, I, I, God's a good and loving God. I don't know what you're focused on this morning. I don't know the accuracy of your spiritual vision. Maybe something has distracted your view of God or clouded your view, or maybe uh, the other side of the fence is where your focus is these days. Maybe your feet have almost slipped. ASAP's almost Slip, but you know what happened with Asaph? He saw the end of those that rejected God. He came into the sanctuary of God, and he was speechless. And he says, whoa, I'm sorry I even thought that about bailing on you. He, you know what he did then? He ran back to God, clinging to God like that. What about Habakkuk? Well, he came to the conclusion, Habakkuk came to the conclusion, even though the world was a mess, he came to the conclusion that if nothing grew, if he had no food, if he lost all his possessions, he would still rejoice in the Lord and have joy in the God of his salvation. How about that for a turnaround? What about Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah, same chapter, by the way, all these were the same chapter. He came to the conclusion that he had real hope and that through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's what Jeremiah came to the conclusion. Each one of them were hanging by a thread. They were almost going to stay in group one. But they moved to group two. And aren't you glad they did? I know they're glad they did. These men focused on God. They held tight when God held tight to them. By the way, you're, the fact that you and I can hold tight is only because God's holding to us. If God wasn't holding us, we would have already slipped and fall. Amen? I, I, that's, that's the facts. 
But God says, I'm allowing you to hold on because I have hold of you. No matter what, no matter what their fears were, no matter what their frustrations were, their flirting with the world, their fatigue, their failures, their foes, all that faded away when they ran back to the throne of God and his faithfulness. What about us here as we come to a close? Maybe you're focused on why. Why, why, why this? Why that? Why, 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 Lord? Why? Why is this happening? Maybe you're focused on when. When will this be over? When will this end? Maybe you're focused on what. What will make me happy? Would it be a new car? Would it be a promotion at my job? What would, what would finally fulfill? Maybe if we had this, if we had that. Here's the deal. All the why, all the when, all the what questions are answered by a who. They're all answered by a who. And his name is Jesus. And as our eyes are on him, everything else will come into focus and the things of this world will grow what? Strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The more we seek Christ, we'll not lose our spiritual sight, we'll gain it. Well, faith perhaps we never had before. The saints who found victory and sought God, they found that everything else had to be dropped and laid aside. And as Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking unto him, the author and finisher of our faith. Why? Because Jesus is the great I am. He's the who to all the questions. He's the I am to our sin. He's the I am to our needs. He's the I am to our trials. He's the I am to our sicknesses. He's the I am to our disappointments, our defeats, our depressions, our fears, our temptations, our doubts, our successes. He's the I am to all of it. Amen? Group two, they feared the Lord. They looked to the Lord, and they found what Jeremiah also said or heard from the Lord, call to me and I will do great and mighty things, which you don't even know. Amen? Let's bow our heads.